Welcome to the Queen of the Sciences podcast, conversations between a theologian and her dad. I'm your host, Sarah Henlicky wilson And I am Paul R. Henlicky. Today on the show, we are beginning our deep dive into Paul's epistle to the Galatians. And although it is merely six chapters long, we are going to be taking two episodes to cover it because it is so deep and complex and not obviously available in its uh, argumentations and situations that really merits the long study. Also, because I read J. Lewis Martin's 600-page commentary, that's right, 600 pages for six chapters, and um, it exploded my brain, and so Dad is going to help me put all the pieces back together again. <laughs> And, and uh, you know, Dad, it's also interesting to me because, of course, Galatians is, you know, one of the all-star pieces for Lutherans. And, of course, I've read Luther's um, commentary on Galatians and loved it very much. So it was particularly interesting to also see the way in which those two perspectives, you know, Luther's late medieval, early modern reading of Galatians in the set of his own church controversy, and then seeing Martin's uh, contemporary historical critical reconstruction of the situation, but then the ways in which he picks up and affirms a lot of Luther's themes while also, you know, putting it in a a bigger framework that just wasn't available to Luther at the time. So I think we're going to have a lot of of really fruitful reflection here to share with our listeners. Absolutely. Um, Martin, uh, in the commentary early on, announces his affinity with Luther's reading of Galatians. Yes, no doubt that uh, inclined me to take him seriously as well. But as you know, we've mentioned him before, he wrote that wonderful book on the Gospel of John that we talked about back in our pair of Johannine episodes that I found. Inc- and in fact, I'm, I'm sort of just floored by him as a, a biblical scholar to have <laughs> written two such breakthrough works, wow, on two entirely different sets of New Testament literature. Yeah, and he was a wonderful human being and a good Christian too. That's right. You knew him as a teacher. So maybe you'll tell us more about that in a bit. Okay. Well, the first major thing that I got out of this, and I want to start here, is that it matters hugely when in Paul's career Galatians was written. Now, listener, in case you never particularly noticed, Paul's letters in the New Testament are stacked up basically by length, longest to shortest, which is why Romans comes first, even though pretty much all scholars agree it was the last epistle Paul ever wrote. And then it trails off towards, I think, Philemon which is the the shortest right before we flip over to Hebrews or whatever comes next. And um, so the the order in which you get them in the New Testament is not the order in which Paul wrote them. And there's been an enormous amount of scholarship trying to reconstruct when, in fact, each letter was written and its relationship to the other letters. And a big clue is Paul's plan for the collection for the poor in Jerusalem, which seems to mark his efforts to repair broken relationships between him and the Jerusalem church. Anyway, the point for us is that Galatians comes pretty early on in Paul's career. It probably follows about 10 years as an evangelist working with the church in Antioch, where he was pals with Barnabas, and then a break between the two of them, which uh, is also obliquely referred to in Acts. And then it seems that Paul struck out on his own and went to Galatia, that's basically part of today's Turkey, Asia Minor, a northern bit of it, uh, probably related to the Celts. There's a etymological relationship between Celt and Galatian. And um, the salient point for us here is that as far as even archaeological evidence shows, there were no Jews at all in this part of the empire. This was a purely Gentile pagan realm to which Paul came. 
And then after that, he went on to the other places and got to know Corinth and his various other churches. Anyway, so the point is, this is really early in Paul's career. And basically what... um. Martin wants us to see, and we will we will come back to this again and again through the episodes, is that Galatians is not Romans. <laughs> that Galatians was written earlier. It's written in a state of white hot heat and anger. And in order to make its case, it sometimes overstates things and sometimes doesn't consider things. And so we have to look at that in its own right and not bring into Galatians what is more sophisticatedly or completely dealt with in Romans. However, Martin suggests that actually Romans itself is in part Paul's attempt to look back at Galatians and steer its interpretation. And I found that hugely illuminating because, Dad, I realize that I have been implicitly correcting Galatians with Romans because somehow, as much as I like Galatians, it was somehow missing things or or I just like, if I found a problem, usually Gr- Romans had the fix. So that's probably what the Apostle Paul <laughs> would want me to do, but it's not the best way to look at Galatians in its own right. <laughs> yeah, very good, Sarah. That's a good summary. And I would just make a couple of comments quickly about the exegetical method I learned from J. Lewis Martin. Um, uh, namely, he always said when you're reading a document, uh, hermeneutically, you must listen with the ears of its first audience. So reading, interpreting the letter to the Galatians, one must listen, he said, with Galatian ears, uh, which is an act of imagination. Now that's kind of a sophisticated correction to a tendency, a psychologizing tendency on the part of classical hermeneutics from Schleiermacher um, to focus on the intention or the mindset or the personality of the author so that you interpret the text in the light of a reconstruction of the author's mind or something like that. By moving to the audience, uh, Martin was trying to overcome an overemphasis on the intention of the author and instead to uh, gauge a text more publicly and socially by the effect it would have upon its first audience. It's still a classical uh, first step in historical criticism. And uh, this is from a, Martin is still part of that generation of historical critics from the middle of the 20th century that believed that good historical criticism was compatible with theological exegesis. Uh, But the trick here is that you've got to read a text in its own particularity. You can't falsely harmonize or synthesize it with other texts, at least not in the beginning. In the beginning, you simply have to pay strict attention to the text that is given to you for understanding. And this brings out the, the peculiar nuances and features of the text and the radicalness in some ways of the letter to the Galatians, and its overreach in some respects, which bore correction later on, in the, as you said, in the letter to the Romans. 
That's really helpful because Paul is such a, a fiery and interesting character. It would be and has been extremely easy to, as you said, psychologize him and import things and imply and infer all sorts of things about what was going on inside of him when he wrote this. But I like that emphasis on trying to think more about the situation to which he's addressing it and the people who would have received it and how they would have heard it. Um, sadly, Martin supposes that probably the letter to the Galatians didn't work in its specific, its intended aim of changing the Galatians back in the right direction again. He figures it was probably rejected, but at least enough people loyal to Paul survived to smuggle the letter out again, and it has uh, benefited the church ever after. I was kind of saddened by that. I was hoping for a happier ending, but anyway. Right. You know, my just just my uh, just an aside note here. My own pet theory comes from a scholar named Trobish that Paul himself actually put Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, and Galatians together as a collection of letters in anticipation of his uh, trip to Jerusalem with the offering, the collection for the poor, as a way of getting his theology uh, out there in front of this visit, which he anticipated would bring trouble upon him. Um, so it's actually Paul who saved Galatians by uh, uh, putting it at the end of a collection that went Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, Galatians. But that's, oh, that's uh, off topic. Well, it's an interesting thought, though. All right. All right. Well, why don't we now just um, make a quick summary of the contents of the book, since it is only six chapters. We can do that. I will give my down and dirty sketch, Dad, and then uh, you fill in anything you think I missed. So, okay, so chapter one, Paul, in a very friendly fashion, immediately accuses the Galatians of abandoning the gospel. And then he starts talking about his past in Judaism. Interestingly, this is the only time, Galatians is the only place where the word Judaism is used in the entire New Testament and how he persecuted the church. Uh, but then how he, of course, came around. In chapter two, he talks about how tensions began to arise with the Jerusalem church when they have turned their back on the original agreement they had with Paul that he would pursue a circumcision-free mission to the Gentiles. You know, the the Peter and James, etc., would be pursuing a uh, with circumcision mission to the to Jews as you know, it was, which is where the whole gospel evangelism started. But then Peter behaves hypocritically by pulling back and not eating with the Gentiles. And that prompts Paul to reflect on the role of the law versus sin versus Christ. Then in chapter three, he asks the rhetorical question of the Galatians, did the spirit come to you by observance of the works of the law or by faith in Christ? The obvious answer being the latter. And then he starts talking about Abraham as the exemplary recipient of the promise not the exemplary recipient of circumcision. And this uh, prompts him on the way of criticizing the law as being guilty of crucifying God's Christ, which is proof that it cannot give life. Now we know that faith comes through Christ and baptism, which erases the law as the means of entry to the people of God. In chapter four, he ratchets it up a level higher and basically talks about how everybody was previously enslaved to the elementary forces of the cosmos, and he counts the law among them. That's a quite shocking move he makes that we'll be talking about, and reminds them how they used to be very welcoming of Paul, and that Paul was like a mother giving birth to them. In fact, he's still giving birth to them. And then he goes into his image of the covenant with Hagar slash Mount Sinai versus the covenant with 
with Sarah splash the slash the spirit, though that's implicit, he never actually gets around to expanding that further. But basically, he makes um, Mount Sinai to be akin to the slave woman rather than a source of freedom. Again, that would have been very shocking at his time. Chapter 5, he talks about the cost of accepting circumcision as binding and obligatory on Gentiles and says, by contrast, you are called to freedom and you are to walk by the spirit and not the flesh. And in chapter 6, he wraps it all up with a promise of not just forgiveness, but total restoration within the apocalyptic newness of Christ. It is the spirit, not the flesh that reigns. It is Christ, not the law that reigns. And you are called to neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, very important, but to a new creation. Amen. See you next time. <laughs> yeah, right. Very good overview. Quickly, just a couple of uh, quick questions back to you. Does it actually, does Paul's text actually say that the law crucified Christ? Or does it, uh, typically, Paul talks about the works of the law not being powerful to, to make one right, right with God, to make one righteous. And typically, he talks about the curse of the law and the curse of the law having found uh, Christ who hung upon a tree and so forth, right? But, but does he actually say that the law crucified Christ? Well, of course, Rather idiotically, I do not have my Bible open in front of me here. <laughs> but let me the, the, reconstruct the reason that came out the way it did is because, and I, this is actually going to be our our whole topic here. You've just previewed everything we're going to say. But basically, the fact is that it says in Leviticus, anyone who is hanged upon a tree shall be cursed. Paul leaves out the by God part. He just omits that entirely and just says, whoever is found on a tree will be cursed. That is what the law says. And it seemed what Martin suggests is that for Paul, this was the radical rendering of Paul's own cosmos to realize that the law that was given at Sinai is the one that passed a curse on the chosen Christ Messiah of God. And that just right. creates this radical rupture in Paul's reality. And so again, I, I, dad, I think you're, you're giving a kind of Romans perspective into it here. I think Paul's <laughs> going to pull back a little bit. I'm asking Martin's question about historical particularity. Does the text actually say that the law crucified Christ? All right. Well, I bet you have your Bible open in front of you. So why don't you tell us? <laughs> No, well, I don't think it does explicitly say that. I think it, what it does say is what you're saying, or what Martin is saying, is a legitimate inference, but it's not explicit. So let's. I just wanted to note that. Okay. Um, a second question is, uh, you left out Jerusalem when you talked about the Hagar-Sinai versus Sarah's spirit yeah. contrast. Right. And uh, do you have a comment on that? Uh, no, it wasn't deliberate. I was just trying to do it fast. Um, but what one thing that did strike me is that it's very clear that Jerusalem throughout Galatians does not refer to the temple or to the non-Jesus-believing Jews. It means specifically the Jerusalem church. And that is a something that a, a casual Gentile reader um, 2,000 years later would never get <laughs> without some help, I don't think. I found that extremely yeah, right. illuminating as well. It's interesting. He does make a kind of a, 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 Paul, Paul does make a connection with the Jerusalem below, uh, and he connects the Jerusalem below with Hagar Sinai, 
uh, and he talks about the new Jerusalem, which comes from above, right? And so that might be a slap at the Jer Jerusalem congregation. Uh, uh, it's, it's, it's left ambiguous, I think, in the text. Right. But it's interesting that Jerusalem is still a central point of reference, even if it has shifted from temple to church. There's still something unique and irreplaceable and symbolically potent about using Jerusalem now for the church rather than for the temple. Well, the, the promises are to Zion. The promises are to Zion, the restoration of Zion. Zion is in Jerusalem. And I think that uh, probably these uh, interlopers whom uh, Martin calls the teachers, they were probably saying something like this, okay, Paul got you halfway in, but you're only halfway in. If you really want to inherit the promises made to Israel and to be included when Zion is restored, you Gentiles, you, you have to go all the way. You have to become fully, uh, fully members of the covenant, and that is by the right of circumcision. Uh, so Paul, um, you know, got you in, but he was a, a little bit of a con job, a little bit of false pretenses. <laughs> he didn't make you have you realize the full cost of admission. And that cost, of course, is then uh, it will be then things like circumcision and observing the Jewish calendar and uh, probably also diet and things like that. Right, right. So two comments to that. It's going to be hard to be focused because everything connects to everything else. So the first thing is that, uh, yes, the, the this ongoing importance of the, the Jerusalem, the Zion imagery, especially because that's so important also throughout the Old Testament and even its, its own apocalyptic and prophetic forecasting of total restoration really does center on Zion, on Mount Moriah, on Jerusalem. And right. so to... to um, shifting emphasis away from that is going to be a much longer term project. And it's not entirely clear. I mean, Paul uses it symbolically. Does it still mean something important for him? Literally, it's hard to say. The one thing that I only very recently, finally, the, the penny dropped for me, but it, it was it really is surprising to think about is that Paul did not live to see the destruction of the temple. So, so much right. of New Testament literature is looking back after this enormous catastrophe for all the Jews, including the Jesus believing ones and trying to figure out what on earth does this mean and how does it connect to Jesus and the end of time and everything. But Paul never saw it. So he's going to have a very different relationship to Jerusalem and its future. And again, like he's, he's kind of neutral about the temple. There's no attack on the temple that's going on here. Like, you, you hear in the Gospels. And then on the flip side, you brought up circumcision. I, there's nothing about circumcision in the Gospels. There's just the one reference to Jesus getting circumcised at the beginning of Luke, which is probably Luke's way of assuring the reader that Jesus started out in a very good Jewish family. But it is not one of the controversies that comes up at all. Now, partly that's because Jesus is not encountering all that many Gentiles, but you figure they would have worked it in if that was really central. Whereas for Paul, it's not the temple cultus. It is a Above all, circumcision, that is the huge explosive issue. But then it kind of drops out of sight. So 
that gives right. you another sense yeah. of how rapidly things are developing in this early period. Yeah, very good. All right, well, let's go more on these teachers that you mentioned. So this is another thing that makes Galatians immensely complicated to interpret, which is that Paul is writing a letter to churches, they guess maybe three congregations in this area of Galatia, that he's already established, spent time with, taught, trained, baptized, and then he has probably left behind him evangelists or catechists who continue to to teach, preach, give pastoral care, etc., whatever that looked like at the time, but in Paul's way. And then while Paul was off somewhere else in the Mediterranean doing his missionary thing, these other teachers, that's what Martin calls them, come in from the Jerusalem church uh, because, and now this is really crucial, they also share the same impulse towards a missionary outreach to the Gentiles. So although they are from this uh, Jewish-centered Jerusalem church or it, it, one of its outposts, um, they also believe that they should carry the news about Christ to the Gentiles and bring them in. So they have that same, th- th- there's no longer any question about whether you should be evangelizing Gentiles at all. That's already passed. Paul and the teachers have the same impulse. But here's the difference, is that basically for the teachers, the way Gentiles get saved is that Jesus Christ has opened the door for them to enter into the already constituted and established people of Israel. And then they can, these Gentiles, who have been living these disgusting, dissolute lives without the law, can now, through Christ, get circumcised and begin to keep the law of Israel and thereby belong to the people of Israel. And that is their salvation. And so that is why the teachers pursue a with circumcision mission to the Gentiles. When Paul hears about this, that's when he goes ballistic and dictates uh, Galatians to Tertius or Gaius or whatever cowering scribe was trying to get everything down that he said. (laughs) Yeah, that's a reconstruction of the of the theology of the teachers uh, again, or the interlopers in Galatia, right? Um, we might ask too, uh, in, uh, in the process, Sarah, what was their criticism of Paul? Because throughout the letter to the Galatians, Paul is on the defensive; he's defending himself against various criticisms, isn't he? And presumably, these criticisms come from this same group, the interlopers, the teachers, who are saying uh, some not-so-nice things about Paul. Can you uh, say what some of those are? Well, I mean, the, the first obvious one is that Paul has not circumcised anybody. He's clearly baptized. There's very, very strong, of course, the famous, um, you know, Galatians 3.28 um, passage, Um but he's not circumcising. And so our listeners may remember that this is a big issue in Acts 15, where there are some among the Pharisees saying that you cannot be saved unless you get circumcised. And and there in Acts, they fall down on the side of not requiring circumcision of the Gentiles. But if, if the model for the teachers is... Uh, this, this seems to be the core issue, is that salvation is entry into the people of Israel who already basically have the r- right relationship to God. So what the teachers are saying, Paul is telling you correctly that the Messiah has come, but he's failing to get you into the people of Israel because that's what you need to do to achieve salvation. Yeah, they remember at the beginning how Paul says after he uh, after his opening salvo, about apostatizing from Christ, 
It's as if he says, huff, there. Now, am I a people pleaser or a God pleaser? And that implies to me that one of the criticisms being made of Paul uh, by the interlopers was that he was a gladhander, that he was a flatterer, that he was bringing the Gentiles in with a lot of cheap grace and uh, without without them paying the price, uh, the uh, necessary price of admission, and that therefore Paul was a people pleaser. And I think that uh, Paul's retort to that is quite fascinating, isn't it? Because he says, let them be anathema. Anyone who preaches a gospel other than the one that I first preached to you when you first received, let them be anathema. Now, we, this word anathema has become very significant for me, as you know, from the Joshua commentary, because anathema is the Greek translation of the Hebrew cherem, which means to be put under the ban, uh, to, to really be accursed, right? Uh, uh, ultimately be accursed. And so Paul says, even if, and he, what's interesting is that Paul includes himself under this curse. Even if I, or an angel from heaven, should preach some other gospel, let them be, let them be accursed. Uh, so that's, uh, I think that's, that's uh, uh, one uh, implicit response he's making to the critique of the teachers. So the, the glad handing, I mean, it, it's hilarious that Paul would ever be accused of being a people pleaser. But, but the, the, the implication there is that it's just too easy. What you don't have to get circumcised, obviously no grown man wants to get circumcised, and you don't have to change any of your evil ways, and you don't have to adopt all of these, you know, restrictions on your diet, et cetera, et cetera. This, this religion is too easy. You're just giving them like all the goods with none of the costs. That's what you're, what you're suggesting. Yeah, and uh, again, there would be this corresponding notion of Christian freedom that Paul is working out of. Uh, the one who fears God fears nothing else. Uh, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, says the book of Proverbs. This is the basic meaning of faith in the Old Testament, uh, 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 in the Hebrew Scriptures. And for Paul, Faith, uh, the faith that comes with Christ is a liberating event be just because it makes you a God-pleaser rather than a people-pleaser. Uh, it, it frees you from the tyranny of the crowd and human approval and human opinion, right, and puts you in a place of responsibility to God uh, for yourself and for your world. That's uh, this notion of Christian freedom that Paul is discussing here. And once you have come into Christian freedom, you really are set free from all the social uh, status symbolizations and virtue and vice signaling that goes on in the, the competitive predatory social relations that human beings are ordinarily involved in. Yeah, I mean, I, that that sounds right. But so I'll, I'll pretend to be the teachers here. 
you know, you say you want to be a God pleaser and not a people pleaser and not be stuck in what the rest of the world is doing. But that's what we already have in Israel because we have the law. We know how to please God. We have trained many centuries on how to do that. When we have failed to do it, it has been a complete national disaster. And so we know that the way to please God is by keeping the law. And that keeps us out of the nasty ways of the Romans and their other subjugated peoples. So this so-called freedom, Paul, double meaning there, that you are proposing is actually just going to deliver people to slavery all over again. That's why they need to get circumcised and start keeping the law of Mount Sinai, and then they will be truly free, and they will know for sure that they are pleasing God. Ha! <laughs> Good for you, Sarah. You're coming right back at us. And you should add, <laughs> you should add to the polemic of your little speech there, by the way, we're the ones who are being truly inclusive because we are reaching out to the Gentiles and inviting them into our existing religion. And we want them to be full and participating members of our <laughs> existing religion. And so we're the ones who are being inclusive, where you're just a glad hander who's, who's, who's making up a new reality. Would you agree, yeah, yeah, and is content with a, a dual-track reality where the Jews stay over here and the Gentiles stay over there. Well, at least until they get circumcised. Then right, they, right, they right. would re really be full full members, and uh, we could assimilate them into our church and therefore demonstrate to the world how inclusive we are, right? Dad, I feel like there's an, another layer of meaning that you're you're uh, proposing here, but okay. Yes, but let's let's not go there. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so how, how would Paul respond to that counterblast uh, from the teachers, right? Uh, I think Paul would have to say a couple of things, wouldn't he? There's a whole rhetoric uh, about being enslaved and being set free throughout the letter to the uh, Galatians. Um, and one of the real issues uh, underlying this rhetoric of liberty and enslavement is the question of power. Uh, and th this is, of course, very important for Martin's interpretation of Galatians. Uh, if there was a law that could rectify, justify, put things right, then salvation would be through the works of the law. But as we know, that no flesh shall be justified by the works of the law. Salvation comes by grace through the faithful deed of Christ, which has the power, has the power uh, to truly uh, set free, uh, set free for God and for one another. For freedom Christ has set you free, submit not again to a yoke of bondage, to any other kind of human ordinances that would enslave you, any kind of social status uh, and virtue vice signaling that would divide you. Uh, rather become, and here's what's so interesting, become slaves to one another in love, jumping all the way to the end of the epistle. I think that's how Paul would respond to that blast from the teachers. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the problem is that, and this is probably why, you know, his, his later um, epistles have to really wrestle with this, because like the Corinthians got the message about freedom and that didn't go so well. Right. And um, so there has to be you, you can, I think the, the point is that he's working it out as he goes along. And so his intuition is strong that 
freedom and and love are the key characteristics of the Christian life. But I don't think that yet really speaks to the teachers, because I think the teachers would say, you fool, freedom is submitting to the law, you know, and you, you can you, you hear this, you know, all the time, or, you know, we're, we're free, we're free for not free from these are, you know, kind of tropes that we still use nowadays, too. So I think what Martin suggests, and I found this really helpful is you have to kind of like back up a step, because then the issue throughout Galatians, and this is very raw and unfinished, and why Romans has to fix it, is that where does the law come from? And what actually is the relationship, not just of Gentiles to the law, but of pious Israelites to the law and ultimately God and his Christ to the law. And I think that's that's what makes this so difficult is to figure out what the law is. There are so many meanings, even in contemporary English, the fallacy of equivocation takes place all the time when you use the word law. Yeah, and so right. I think I think what we need to do now is spend some time disentangling all these different senses of the law and what the teachers mean by it, what Paul means by it, and how he starts working towards what the relationship of whatever particular law is towards Christian reality. Yeah, very good. This is in this is where Martin's interpretation of Galatians is at its historical critical best in bringing out the specific uh, sense of what Paul says about the law in Galatians 3. Also theologically the most challenging or even problematic. But go ahead. What do you tell us tell us about that, sir? Well, so this is, again, Martin's uh, reconstruction. He he talks about both Paul and the teachers having an apocalyptic perspective. So we've talked about apocalyptic a lot, and it's this idea not just of the world carrying on as usual, but God's active invasion of the world in order to offer some kind of deliverance from negative forces like sin, death, or devil. And so again, this is, you know, Paul and the teachers are similar in that they both have an apocalyptic approach, but there's a really critical fundamental difference between the two. So in in Paul's kind of apocalyptic, it's it's much more um, cosmic. And the way we use the word apocalyptic now in the sense that there are these anti-God powers that have invaded God's good creation and are continually bringing it into chaos and nothingness and death and sin and all of these bad things. And so the world is basically under siege. And I think that corresponds to to what you've proposed about um, the Gospel of Mark depicting Jesus, like Joshua, in fact, marching through the occupied territory on multiple levels of Palestine and reclaiming the, the sick and the dying and the alienated and the sinful for God all over again. So that's that's where the, the real battle lies between, between God and anti-God forces, and we are the battleground, essentially. And then by contrast, Martin proposes that the teacher's form of apocalyptic has to do with uh, specifically human rejection of God, not as a subset of the the um, anti-God invasion of the earth, but as the primary problem. And that um, what humans need is basically illumination of their evil ways and then directions on how to get back on track to God again. And because um, God is gracious, God has provided the law, which then tells us how to work our way back to God again. And this is the, called like the doctrine of the two 
ways, um, it, it's actually been revived in certain kinds of contemporary Protestantism, to my horror. But um, <laughs> it's it's basically the idea. It's the choose life or choose death. It's up to you. Like, I'm God. I've laid out both paths. You know where they're going to lead. So follow the law and choose life because it will go so much the better for you. And so, so humans, basically, it's up to them to make the right choice and move in the right direction. And then they will be forgiven and given the gift of eternal life or, you know, the, the restored life of Zion or whatever. And so th that's the, the fundamental difference. Basically, for the teachers, human sins are the primary problem, and they know how to fix it through the law. For Paul, human sins are a subset of the much bigger problem of these anti-God powers, and therefore forgiveness and the law is a subset of the much more radical cure that God offers in Christ's death on the cross and resurrection. Yeah, good summary, Sarah. Very good. So, two th several things that the teachers and Paul have, and at least three things the teachers and Paul have in common. Uh, number one, uh, they have an apocalyptic worldview that the 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 world is in dire trouble uh, uh, because of anti-divine forces, whether we locate that in cosmic powers or in human disobedience to the law is a, a, a sub, subset question. So that's the apocalyptic worldview. The world has been uh, alienated from its creator and is in a state of enmity with the creator and it needs deliverance. That's the apocalyptic framing of the question. Number two um, is that uh, Christ Jesus somehow makes a decisive difference, uh, and that decisive difference is an offer of grace uh, that both both the teachers and Paul have a kind of, broadly speaking, a theology of grace, that God has made a gracious initiative, right? That's what I was kind of uh, joking about when I was calling them the inclusive ones who were going to include Gentiles in their church, right? They have a theology of grace. Uh, and so forth. They're both they're both gr grace arguments, aren't they? And they are. Third, yeah. and then third is that this grace is focused somehow on Christ. Christ makes this difference. Christ opens the door to the Gentiles, and both of them would agree uh, about that. I think in principle, don't you? Yeah, yeah, I think that's that's very much the case. And I think it is really important to see that these are both sola gratia, grace alone kinds of arguments. In either case, God has provided the means by which salvation is obtained. Which would not be, you know, even foreign to the Old Testament understanding of the rights of atonement. Uh, right, God right, has right. graciously provided uh, the means of atonement in the a rituals uh, uh, sacrifice recorded for us in, in Deuteronomy and Leviticus. Right, yeah, everything is covered. God wants you to be restored. He gives you ways to be restored. And a lot of those laws are about overcoming the natural forces of chaos and death that is part of creaturely existence. So it is, in that in that respect, it's very wrong to accuse um, either the teachers or the Old Testament of not being grace-centered. So, and then in, in a nutshell, uh, one of the things you were highlighting is that for Martin, you used the language of the anti-divine powers invading the cosmos and enslaving it. That's Paul's chief, that's Paul's chief uh, uh, antagonist, right? Right. Uh, to the protagonist Christ. 
And for the teachers, the chief antagonist is human lawlessness, which is the very essence of the Gentile condition, being without the law. So let's continue with that then in uh, how this makes sense out of the various different meanings of the term hanomos, the law, in, in the letter to the Galatians. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've noticed for a long time because I've done a, a fair amount of writing and reflecting on the law in Christian life. And it just it means so many different things and has so many different uh, implications. So uh, as just a, the two obvious ones, there can be the law that's like Torah in the positive sense of Psalm 1, how I love your law, oh God, it gives order and sense and direction to my life. It makes It's a positively good force for the, the real exigencies of creaturely existence. And then there is the law that accuses and condemns and judges. And, um, you know, th- those are all over the place as well. So, so <laughs> when you're talking about the law, you have to always be really clear what you're talking about, because I think a lot of um, even though I think there are, are genuinely core disagreements here, I think a lot of confusion in Christian talk comes out of not specifying what exact sense of the law we're using. And so how much more when we're looking at something like Galatians. So, I mean, just, just to, to start us off, Dad, I mean, uh, Paul can completely attack the law and the works of the law as being guilty of crucifying God's Christ. And then at the end of the letter, he can talk about the law of Christ without uh, right. blushing. You know, so so why don't you start us off there? Like how many how many different laws are at work here? And, and what do you think Paul is really after? Yeah. And here I have to indicate, I think, a, a, probably a, at least a slight disagreement with Mar- Martin or maybe a serious disagreement with Martin. Because in the context in which Paul talks about the law being given by angels through a mediator, but uh, God is one. Uh, and uh, therefore implying that the the one God cannot be the author uh, of uh, the law, which is given by a mediator through angels and so forth. There's a, and Martin observes here that there's a very de- deliberate distancing of God and God's blessing from the law in its multiplicity and in its pedagogical function, uh, politically and in its uh, cursing activity spiritually. Uh, And so uh, Martin kind of sets the law uh, to the side. And as you said, he can even include it among the anti-divine powers, right? By by kind of demoting the Sinai revelation (laughs) as if it were not a true self-declaration of God in any sense at all. That's how, at least that's what Galatians seems to be saying, doesn't it? Yeah, that's very much so, which is startling, to say the least. It is. And it, it, if you want to look for an avenue uh, from Paul to Marcion in the second century, here would be your, the, 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 the opening through which Marcion can drive his truck. Right, right. By making such a distinction. But I think what you what what Martin misses in this context, and his rhetoric of invasion is part of this, uh, uh, mis- uh, in some ways a kind of a misleading metaphor. I think is that in the same context, Paul immediately go, goes on to talk about the stoicheia to cosmo, uh, the principalities, the 
powers and principalities of the cosmos. He calls them weak and elementary beggarly spirit, spirits, right, who have enslaved you. Now, what this suggests to me is that the, um, the angelic powers that were given uh, provenance to govern the nations in the time leading up to Christ have usurped uh, God's authority. And they have become uh, enslavers rather than guides and so forth and so on. What Paul is really doing is trying to relativize the Sinai covenant uh, as one particular nomos given to one particular people for one particular purpose alongside a host of other such stoicheia of the cosmos that exist. And I think this would be something similar to how the the book of Acts uh, uh, interprets uh, the times of ignorance and so forth, uh, that these, uh, these uh, angelic powers, these governing principles uh, who, ha- who were appointed by the Creator uh, to have stewardship over various nations and peoples have in fact, uh, uh, in fact, ascribed divinity to themselves, have become tyrants, and 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 so forth, and thus be, have become anti-divine powers. But they're not invaders; they're parts of the creation that are in rebellion against the sovereignty uh, of the one true God. So I, I would differ a little bit with Lou Martin along those lines. I have to say the whole part, I, I was going to have us mostly talk about that next time, about the the cosmic principles, was even with all that long commentary, extremely impenetrable and foggy to me. And I don't I don't know what to make still of Paul's talking about the, the intermediary angels because there aren't any intermediating angels in Exodus. And I don't, I don't, yeah, I don't get how Paul makes the move or gets away with it without um, just proving to the teachers that he's ignoring the whole revelation given to the people of Israel. And I mean, again, I think that's why he makes the correction later in, in Romans. But I... I don't know. I guess the the one thing that makes sense of what you said is that if there are multiple laws given to multiple peoples, um, then for it, it would sort of imply that it's wrong to make another set of people keep this other nation's set of laws. So that I don't know that that implies a level yes. of um, boundedness and well, but. It can go both ways, right? You can you can use it to um, use that point both to create a, a church of Jews and Gentiles, or you can use it to create apartheid. It can go in both directions. <laughs> that's what. That's right. That's what. That's what right. is? Um, yeah, this is still very unclear in my mind. Yeah, that's ultimately one of the reasons for Paul why the law finally is not no solution to the human predicament. It is an expression uh, 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 of the human predicament. It is a managing device. Uh, He says it's a pedagogue uh, to uh, uh, keep us under control until faith should come and be revealed. And that that word pedagogue uh, uh, is a very interesting word in Greek because this was the the tutor or the uh, household slave 
who was assigned to uh, escort the children to their school and back and to make sure they did their homework. And he, <laughs> he was a disciplinarian. He was not a childhood favorite. <laughs> he was a kind of a strict, a strict enforcer uh, of, a, of a rigorous uh, a childhood. Uh, and so Paul interprets this cultural plurality of nomoi, of various laws of various nations, including the law of Moses and its hundreds of commandments, as divinely instituted uh, until the coming of Christ and faith. But now that Christ and faith have come, their task is finished. Uh, and because it can't ultimately do anything but manage a bad situation. All right. So just a, a quick side note and a forecast of disastrous developments in the future of the church. But that's exactly the logic that led to the um, obnoxious Christian history of religions inference that Christianity is the apex religion and that Judaism is like a religion for children who still need to be disciplined to do their homework. But now Christianity has come along and become superior. Right. That's a great question, Sarah. So so you you posed, you raised this question. Why don't you answer it? Is, is Galatians uh, anti-Judaic in this sense, supersessionist? Uh, how would uh, you and or Martin respond to that charge? Yeah, well, uh, I, I think the first thing to to say is that it's clear Paul is not actually addressing non-Jesus believing Jews at all here. There actually isn't a critique of Judaism as such, even though Paul refers to his past in it. He actually doesn't pass any judgment on Jews who don't believe in Jesus and continue to keep the law. Because, of course, that's what they're doing. For him, the specific issue is requiring people who are baptized believers in Jesus to adopt the I don't know what did you call it all all the all the trappings the dress the the way of life of non Jesus believing Jews so there seems to be some sort of separation there not I mean Paul obviously thinks it's superior to believe in Jesus in some way but not as one religion succeeding another um, and I, I suppose the other thing is that for for Paul he 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 makes the move, which is uncomfortable to the teachers that Israel is as alienated from God as the Gentiles are. And I mean, I think that is actually, in this case, the superior reading of the Old Testament. <laughs> yes, indeed, Israel is as alienated um, as anyone else from God, and that Christ is the reconciliation of Jews as well as of these Gentiles who have never known the law. Um, but I don't think I've really successfully answered the question still. You know, so I, I don't think it's anti-Judaic, but of course, there's no rabbinic Judaism as we know it either. <laughs> Everything is defining the terms here. Sorry, I'm going to stop babbling, Dad. You, you take this up now. <laughs> well, okay. Uh, uh, I think that uh, for Paul, something is categorically at stake here that not simply doesn't simply supersede Judaism, but it also supersedes acrobistia. That's the Greek word for uncircumcision, right? Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision matters. All that matters is a new creation. Paul is not uh, arguing that uh, uh, either circumcision or uncircumcision are to be canceled or abolished any more than male and female 
or are to be abolished, or perhaps boss and worker are to be abolished. What he's arguing is that elevating these binaries into your very eternal identity, that's what's being abolished. Abolished, absolutely, for you are all one in Christ Jesus, right? There's neither Greek nor Jew, slave nor free, no male and female, but all are one in Christ. And that that uh, unity of the ecclesia, of the those called out by the gospel from this present evil age, by the Christ who died for their sins and was raised for their justification, they are manifesting a new kind of human society, a qualitatively new kind of human society, which is itself being undermined in principle when the demand is being raised within the ecclesia that Something in addition uh, to the faith in the gospel is needed for full membership, uh, what we used to call gospel plusing, the gospel plus something else. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, again, I I can't help but stand 2,000 years later than Paul and say, well, you know, as it turns out, Jesus has not come back yet. And the church has, of course, accrued unto itself laws and customs and rights and sociological and institutional boundaries. And, you know, you and I in our recent episode on Nehemiah talked approvingly of certain kinds of of walls and boundaries. So it seems like it's still, the conditions are still present to interpret the ecclesia way of being sociological as fundamentally superior to the synagogue way of being sociological. Yeah, undoubtedly there will be a a disagreement between believing Israel and believing Christianity uh, to this day about this issue. The task is to achieve uh, a humane disagreement, uh, it seems to me. Uh, You cannot be a Jew without thinking that this is the true religion to which you are called. Nor can you be a Christian without believing that this is a true relig- the true religion to which you've been called. To which everybody's been called, actually. I think that's one of right. the big differences right there, too. Yeah, I, of course, I don't want to speak for Jewish theology here, of course, but I, I still think the point I'm making is that you cannot hold to the faith without holding it sincerely. Mm-hmm. And holding mm-hmm. it sincerely would also mean even for the believing Jew, not that you must become a Jew, though if you want to convert to Judaism, you have to be circumcised and et cetera, et cetera, right? <laughs> right. right? I, have a, I have a Jewish student right now who is uh, thinking about going the rabbinate and going to a seminary to study to be a rabbi, uh, but she's never actually converted. And this is weighing on her whether she has to take this step of actually converting to Judaism. But she, wait, she, but you said she is Jewish. Well, she's Jewish by her father, but not by her mother. Oh, and therefore, right, right. she has to she has to be con, she has to go through conversion. Yeah, but she's lucky. She's a girl. She doesn't have to get circumcised. Yeah. Well. Okay. Uh, anyway, you get the point here. Is that you? You're holding to a religion because, in some deep sense, you hold it to be true. Uh, you know, there's a lot of nuancing that has to go on with that, but you're holding it to be true. And and so the task for Jewish Jews and Christians today is to get past uh, the polemics of the past and to achieve a genuine understanding of our difference. 
one, and that in itself is a humanizing uh, work. I suppose it also casts an extremely critical pall over the lived reality of the church, which by Paul's definition should be bounded only by baptism and spirits and belief in the crucified Christ and his father. And absolutely nothing else should stand in the way of fellowship among believers. And obviously tons and tons of things actually do. So at least if we're making the argument on the basis of religion, may rather than say theology or content of the faith. Christianity has not pulled any magnificent coup over predecessor religions. Well, now you're talking. Now you're talking (laughs) because Paul's theology would be, if it's criticizing Judaism, how much more, if I can paraphrase Paul, is it criticizing Christianity as we know it? Yes. Amen. And that's that's the point. Galatians is a criticism of a, of Christian churches. It is not actually a criticism of Judaism as such. Amen. All right. Okay. All right. Well, let's let's round out this episode because we're approaching our hour already and I still feel like we've barely scraped the surface, but I just want to pursue a little bit longer this question of what the law actually is and its relationship to God and its relationship to us. Because we've already talked about how for Paul, the the laws, you know, Levitical condemnation of someone who hangs on a tree is an exposure basically of the fact that I, I guess what it comes down to is that for the teachers, and I would and it seems classically, though not universally, for Old Testament Hebraic thought. The law is entirely gift, it's good, it's guidance, it is the way to life. And so what Martin stresses is that Paul now, because of the crucified Christ, you know, hanging before his eyes, he has been, he, his eyes have been opened to see in the scripture itself, a dual voice of the law that maybe he never fully noticed before. And what he sees right. now is that the law does continue to give goodness and guidance, etc. But the law also curses, not not just accuse, you know, like the guilty conscience thing, but actually curses and condemns to the point of, of the death on the cross. And so now Paul can no longer see the law um, univocally or, or with one eye, like he has a stereoscopic vision now that the law has this other side to it that was not clear to him before. And furthermore, that because of this, the law is is finally ruled out as a way of reconciliation with God, and that the, the cursing and condemnation aspect of the law is somehow alien to God's own being. Like, I can see how a lot of, like, Luther's doctrine of, of God and his own doctrine of, of salvation develops out of this idea that, that the the condemning God is somehow the alien or hidden work of God. It's not somehow properly God's. And yet somehow it is aligned with God because it is God's law. Did I just put too much Luther in Paul? (laughs) I'm not sure. No, I I think that, I think that, I think what you're saying is how Luther developed his view. Uh, For Luther, the law without the gospel is the voice of Satan. The law that only accuses and never justifies that, that is Satan trying to destroy you by, you know, um, Hashatan, the accuser of the Old Testament, uh, who tests people to, for the purpose of destroying them. And so, as the, Luther himself uh, said, uh, that God does a, uh, a, God does a improper work uh, in order to do a proper work. God 
uh, kills in order to make alive. That purpose clause is absolutely crucial. And if that purpose clause is ever left out of proclamation, you're not preaching the gospel of God, you're preaching Satan and Satan's accusations against humanity. And that, that, I think, is for Luther uh, 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 the, uh, the way to connect the negative function of the law with the ultimate blessing of uh, purpose of God's blessing and so forth. And I think, Sarah, you're really right here. Uh, Paul's Christological apocalypse, he, that's the word he uses in the beginning of Galatians, apocalypse. Uh, the apocalypse of Christ as the Son of God uh, to, to Paul uh, created uh, in him, in his perception, uh, an antinomy within the law that he had not previously been aware of between the function of cursing and the function of blessing. And that's why, he, that's why he prioritizes the covenant with Abraham as a covenant of promise and blessing to all nations and subordinates the uh, circumcision and later the uh, Sinai revelation and the commandments, what he calls consistently the works of the law. All that is subordinated uh, in the function of pedagogue until the fulfillment in Christ of the promise made to Abraham for the blessing of all nations. That perception of an antinomy within the law uh, is, I think, uh, Paul's discovery. And that's why Jews, believing Jews that do not share Paul's apocalypse, just can't see it that way, can't read the Torah that way. Yeah, and I think it's really important to say that it's not just like um, an illumination of knowledge that comes from Christ, but actually for Paul, the advent of Christ and his crucifixion and resurrection actually changes the fabric of reality. So it's not just like, yeah. oh, now that I believe in Jesus, I can see things that you can't. But actually, <laughs> Jesus, he he does actually change what's going on. It, it is a before and after, a, a punct in the history of the world, which causes you both to look at what came before in a new light because of that altering effect, but also means that the future is going to have a, a different trajectory as well. And I think that's important because then you can't really pull the, you know, like, oh, you're just stubborn and blind and refuse to see kind of argument. That's that that's illegitimate because like the thing has to happen to you. And for Paul, the thing is, is the gift of the Holy Spirit given in baptism that actually changes you in the way that um, like conforms your body and life to the new reality that has come with Christ. Absolutely. Apocalypse is not simply information. It is an event. And that's why Martin liked the metaphor of invasion, because it, it forcefully communicated the idea of an act of God that is changing reality. Of course, there's a lot of theological questions that are raised about that and so forth. But I think you're right that that apocalypse is not simply revelation as information. It's revelation as event uh, so that it, the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Far be it for me to boast except in the cross of Christ my Lord, as Paul concludes Galatians. Right, right. 
Okay, well, I'm, I think we're going to continue teasing out these these layers of the law in our next episode, too, though we're going to shift over to some other topics as well. But I just wanted to finish up this one by commenting that one of the my, my own personal apocalyptic revelations in reading this commentary is I finally got with new clarity what I have um, disliked about um, so-called grace language in um, liberal Protestants and uh, such churches, which is that I realized that they were declaring the end of circumcision, but making a law out of uncircumcision. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of grace talk is not actually freedom in Christ. It's woohoo, uncircumcision. It's awesome. You have to come and get uncircumcised. (laughs) Lawlessness is the way of the future, right? lawlessness is the law right yeah but it's still it's still fundamentally elevating one of these polarities um rather than leaving that behind altogether and becoming slaves of one another in love because of christ or something something like that yeah right right when what matters to paul is a new creation that's all that matters to paul and i wish that would be the takeaway for our listeners from listening to this episode, is that Paul's letter to the Galatians is just as profound a critique of real existing Christianity uh, as it is of any imaginary boogeyman's uh, with respect to what people imagine about Judaism. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. All right. Well, so next time, more Galatians, and we promise the sequel will be as good as the original. listening to the Queen of the Sciences podcast. For show notes and more, visit our website, queenofthesciences.com. To find out more about what we do, visit sarahhenlickywilson.com and paulhenlicky.com. Finally, please leave us a review on iTunes and tell a friend about the show.